So today we're going to end, we're going to wrap up this series with the last two verses in James. All right, so take your Bibles, open them up, phone, whatever you got, and uh, they read like this. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. These uh, two verses are not long. They're seemingly simple, but they pack a lot of content. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to finish out this series well. So would you join me? Let's pray and invite the Lord to help us this morning. Father, when we come to these verses, uh, there's a simple take to them, and then there's a deeper take, and it's the wrestling in between. And we seek you this morning uh, that you would help us through the presence of your Spirit to negotiate these verses well and to wrap the, the series up. Father, we'll be coming in communion before you and affirming what you did for us and what others have done for us. And we pray that you will just wrap a bow on this morning and it'll be a series that people will take with them through the rest of their life. And we ask for your favor in that and pray this in your name. Amen. All right. All right, so this phrase here, my brothers and sisters, shows again that James is talking to believers. He's talking to uh, the church that's been dispersed, as we mentioned way back when we first started James. And, uh, and then he states something that I think we're all very familiar with. If one of you should wander from the truth. You know, we've probably all seen it, right? Wandering from the truth. Someone... Uh, We've, we've, uh, we've seen it, we've experienced it. A friend, a brother, sister, a husband or a wife, a neighbor, a cousin, someone we led to the Lord, a spiritual leader. They once walked solidly with Christ and now have walked away, or as James put it, they've wandered from the truth. And the fair question this morning is, what to do with people who drift away from the faith? I remember when I, I first came to Christ and uh, it, it was that first flash of wonder and awe. Yeah, it was just all bells and whistles and uh, I couldn't believe what I'd found. I mean, church, the believers, Bible study, wow, amazing. You know, the glory and the kingdom of God, like I didn't know that existed. It was just an incredible deal. And from my perspective, everything was just one big flow, one just big sucking vortex towards Jesus. It was all moving that way. And uh, I got caught up in that. And Jesus was doing amazing things that I'd never even realized were going on. So it was just like, wow! You know, it just, it just captivated me. Now, I knew there were people that weren't moving towards them, but I thought it would only be a matter of time before they did. Uh, you know, half of them were my family, right? So I figured, okay, they aren't yet, but they will soon be caught up in that same pull that I was, and it'll only be a matter of time. What I didn't have a category for at that time was Uh, at the very same time that I and many others were moving towards Jesus, there were just as many, if not more, who were moving away from him. I I didn't catch that while I was in that process. Let me just give you a simple visual. This is really uh, a simple take. But if you put Jesus in the middle and you have people that are moving towards him, right? But at the same time, you take Jesus and put him in the middle, there are also people who are moving away from him. So if you put those together, it kind of looks like this, right? There's people walking towards in a way. Uh, If you were to just take Mill Creek uh, and put Jesus in the middle of Mill Creek, maybe we'll put him at Central Market or the Starbucks right there, right? 
maybe at Cold Stone, somewhere right in the... We just put them in the middle of, of Mill Creek. And uh, you would find, and we told people, Jesus is sitting at the Starbucks, go have him, some coffee with them, right? You'd find a lot of people moving towards him, right? But you'd also find a lot of people moving away from him. And interesting, in Mill Creek, we'd find a lot of people running parallel. They don't want to get too close or too far away, right? They're just running parallel to the whole thing. I call this the churn. It's lots of people moving in lots of different directions. And James is saying, you'll see this in life. And so when you read these verses, they seem uh, pretty straightforward. Find someone who's pointed out and just turn them back towards Jesus. Right? Just find somebody who is wandering from the truth and, and turn them back. But this little statement is loaded. It's far from simple and it's loaded with theological implications. And it gets enormously tricky. Uh, I had to wrestle with this all week and I figured since I had to, I would uh, engage you in it as well. Uh, but, and it gets really difficult when you start to ask the question, who is the wanderer? All right? If we're talking about that, and you're thinking through that, one of the questions is, well, is the wanderer, are they unbelievers? Okay? Are, they, are they people who are wandering from the truth? Are they unbelievers? Or are they believers? Now, this is a really important question because the sense of the question is that they are people who are in the community of faith. Look at this again, the first line up here. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should, what does it say? Wander from the truth. He's talking about believers here. And theologically, the question is, is that possible? How can such a simple statement create such a theological dilemma, such a, a catch-22? Well, let's see if we can make some sense of it. We're not going to answer all of it this morning, but see if we can give a reasonable response. One of the reasons it creates such a dilemma and firestorm is because of the nature of the statements found within Scripture itself. So let's take, a, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John 10, John chapter 10. This is one of the more famous things that Jesus ever said. He says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. As I said, this is a, a famous statement. And from this statement comes the firm and accurate belief that no believer can be stolen from Jesus. That no matter how powerful the force, once we come to faith in Christ, we're secure in Christ. We can't be stolen. Jesus' own words are, No one is greater than God who gave us to Jesus, and since no one can snatch them out of God's hand, no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand either. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. This is the doctrine of eternal security. It's a great doctrine. The doctrine of eternal security is buttresses and fortified then by the doctrine of predestination, which is found in places such as Romans 8. So if we go from this, then we go to Romans 8, and it says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice, by the way, in that verse, we use that verse a lot, it does not say all things uh, that happen to you who are a believer are good. It says God will work all things out for good. Any of you had some not-so-good things happen to you? Right? Matter of fact, sometimes because you're trying to walk with Christ, things get worse instead of better. Right? 
God says here in his word, he'll turn it for good. He doesn't say all things will be good. But then it goes on to say this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so, so far, so good. That seems pretty clear and straightforward. And we are secure in our salvation in Christ. But then there's other verses that we run into that seem to indicate something different. Let's take a look at Hebrews 6 and see what I mean. Turn to Hebrews 6 or you can look up on the screen. Hebrews 6 is having this discussion and then it says this in verses 4 through 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming of age, and have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Notice the descriptions and the categories used here. It says those who have once been enlightened. It's someone who the light bulb is turned on for. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. And the tagline is who have fallen away and it states that it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. This creates an incredible Gordian knot theologically for two reasons. First of all, the previous verses we read said that it's impossible to be stolen. Now these verses say that it's impossible to renew them once they've fallen away. Any of your heads going, right? Secondly, for our purposes in regarding the two verses we're looking at this morning, from James, the flip side of the discussion is... Why go after someone who's walked away because it's impossible for them to repent? Why waste the time? It's a done deal. They've walked away. They can't repent. So we'll just go on and find somebody else to work with because that, it's, it's finished, right? Now, there is the issue here of what constitutes a true believer. Now, many will say, okay, so if they've fallen away, they weren't really true believers. They looked like true believers. They smelled like true believers. They tasted like true believers. Uh, they acted like true, but they weren't true believers because they fell away and that proves they weren't true believers. Right? And that's the, how you rationalize that out. If they were true believers, they would, have, they would have stayed. And then there's the issue also of, uh, well, let's look at it from the fruit of a person's life. Right? That's one of the ways that Scripture talks about it. Matter of fact, in the verses in Hebrews, if you follow the next two verses, they actually use that illustration, and it says this. Um, let me get there. The land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. The land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. And so it's talking about land and its capacity and whether it bears fruit or not as an indicator of the person being a true believer or not. 
Uh, Jesus actually uses a parable like this. It's a famous one. We know it really well. It's found in Matthew chapter 12, and it's called the parable of the sower. Right? And you've heard this one many times before. He says, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So here Jesus uses the illustration of the receptivity of the different kinds of soil as an indicator of the heart and whether a person is a true believer or not. And his relationship with himself, Jesus, and the Word of God. In the first person, they hear the Word of God, but immediately Satan comes and steals the Word away. I'm sure you've had experience like that. I remember sharing when I first came to Christ in that powdered milk story uh, that um, I shared with a guy that next week. And he got very excited, but the next day he came back and he was, someone had talked to him and he was totally, uh, it had gotten stolen out of his heart in one night. In one night it was gone. And he was mad at God because God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so therefore he determined that God was evil and could not be trusted and it got stolen right out of his heart. Like, and nothing I could say would persuade him differently. Uh, The second person hears the word of God with great joy, but once trouble or persecution come, they wither and fade. And uh, we know that kind of person as well because uh, they're, they're good time Charlies, right? We're in, we're in it as long as there's something good for me and it benefits me and it's easy. But once it gets hard, once it gets difficult, once it costs me something, then, then I'm out. I am not playing that game anymore. The third person hears the word, but then the cares and the worries and concerns of this like choke out the primacy and the priority of the kingdom and they don't bear any fruit. There's, a, there's something that's grown there, but there's never any wheat that comes on it because it gets choked out. The fourth person hears the word and bears fruit and their life shows evidence of being in Christ. Jesus says some 100, some 60, some 30. They're not all equivalent, but they they bear fruit. But this still doesn't solve our problem this morning because it doesn't tell us who and who not to try and turn. Right? We can look at these different things, but it, it doesn't tell us exactly how to do that. What if someone bears fruit for a season? And then turns away. It's a common experience for many of us. I said to you this morning, do you know anybody who used to walk in the Christian life with you and is no longer here this morning? Do names and faces come to your mind? Uh, I can think of dozens upon dozens of them. Right? So that creates that conundrum. And then the other question would be, are there any wanderers in the Bible that we could take our cues from? And actually there are. The most famous one, of course, is this one, the prodigal son, right? He wandered. We wandered off to a far country. So goes the parable. Actually, in this story, there's two wanderers. There's the prodigal who went away, and then there's the older brother, right? The prodigal is wandering outside the system. The older son, the older brother, is wandering within the system. 
As a matter of fact, when Jesus was talking to people, you found a lot of people who were wandering within the system like the older brother. For example, Nicodemus was one who was wandering within the system. Right? If you listen to that dialogue with him and Jesus, if you read that chapter carefully, you realize he was wandering. He wasn't sure where he was. Another person, Zacchaeus, was wandering within the system. Right? And his contact with Jesus uh, <clears throat> was a significant moment. Another person that is mentioned in Scripture is Demas. It says that Demas went on one of the missionary trips. He's mentioned very highly in one epistle. And then later, uh, Paul says, Demas has come to me with these things because Demas has deserted us, deserted us for the world. And so uh, here's someone who was in one of the first missionary teams and he flaked out and walked away. And you never hear Demas again. No clue whatever happened to him. An interesting contrast to Demas is John Mark. John Mark's story is fascinating because John Mark also was on a missionary trip with, with Paul. As a matter of fact, he was on the very first one with Paul and Barnabas. And he got three quarters of the way through, said, this isn't my cup of cake, and he walked out and left. Then they came back, they decided to go on a second trip, and Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark along again. Come on, mercy, grace, let's give him another shot. Paul says, no way. The dude flaked out, we're not taking him again, it isn't worth the risk. And Paul and Barnabas got into a contentious spat over it, broke up their relationship, and they took off. Paul went on the trip. Barnabas goes and gets John Mark. Now you never hear of Barnabas again in Scripture. But what you do hear of is John Mark. Because Barnabas mentored, he was called the helper, Barnabas. He mentored John Mark. And then later in Scripture, Paul says, hey, bring my parchments, bring my cloak, and bring me John Mark, for he's useful to me. And so we know from history, John Mark wound up in Rome and started with Paul, later shifted over to Peter. And then Peter dictated his gospel. Mark was the secretary who wrote it down, and we now know that gospel as the gospel of Mark. Right? So there's two cats right there. Uh, two other ones that we don't often mention, but uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. How would you like to name your kid that? Hymenaeus. Yeah, right? You could do a lot of it. I'll just leave that. Okay. In 1 Timothy, Paul's talking to Timothy and he's talking about being entrustworthy with the gospel. And he says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Harmonius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan they may, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So this brings up another interesting dialogue and dilemma. By the way, there's more of these. These are just the ones I can fit within 35 minutes, right? But here's somebody who had faith and they shipwrecked it. it if you think of their faith as a boat, they ran it on the rocks. They, they grounded it. They, they shipwrecked. And, and Paul said, I've turned them over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. So apparently here are two guys who served in the ministry and then later popped out and now were blaspheming the name of God with either wrong doctrine or I, I'm not sure it doesn't say. So what are we to do with this? What, what, what should we do with, with this response? And I want to suggest that Jesus gives us a clue to it 
in this. Uh, Pastor Jan, my, my mentor, taught me one time, if you take one, any one single idea and take it to its logical extreme, it becomes ridiculous. It always has to be harnessed with other ideas. And so does this particular topic we're talking about this morning. Uh, there, you can fall into the camp. I was talking to John Templin. He said he grew up in the Assemblies of God and he was afraid he'd lose his salvation. And every day he prayed that he wouldn't lose his salvation and that if he was in danger of that, he'd die before he'd lose his salvation. Right? And you can get to the other side of uh, the... Predestination, you know, we're we're in Christ, we can't be lost to. Well, I can't be lost, so I can do whatever I want, so it doesn't matter because it's all a done deal anyways. And both of those are extending good ideas too far, right? It's taking them to wrong extremes that they're not supposed to go to. There's the issue of God's mercy here that we're dealing with in the, and of us extending God's mercy to other people. How are we respond when we find people, whether lost or saved, in sin? Well, the book of Jude gives us a hint. In Jude chapter 1, it says this. It says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Jude advocates that we extend mercy to people. And notice he lists a couple different categories of people. It says, hey, it doesn't matter what station you find them in. You have been extended mercy by the Lord Jesus. Extend mercy to these people. James would call these people wanderers. Jude calls them, you know, um, those uh, who have uh, saved others by snatching them from the fire. They're wandering towards the fire. Uh, James also spoke of mercy. Remember in chapter 2 when we went through the study, it says, So speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James had learned something really important. Who do you think was judgmental? James was. And what did he learn? He was extended mercy by his older brother, Jesus. And as a result, James is saying extend mercy to others. Right? And this, I think, helps somewhat because the question we have is what do, what do we do with this dilemma, this, this theological catch-22, this Gordian knot of who is the wanderer? Jesus, uh, as always, helps us with his amazing grasp of difficult things. Uh, on one occasion, they were trying to trap Jesus in his words. They were, they were good at it. And they posed a question which just had huge political and kingdom implications. It was a, a contested issue and debate. And they were, they were using it as a sword to kind of define where the lines were so they could pin them against the wall. Uh, you know this story well. Uh, before I stay, put it up on the screen, though, uh, guys who are helping to serve communion, would you get up and help distribute communion right now while we finish out the rest of this? It's like a TV commercial, right? Turn to Matthew 22. Tell us then what you think. These are the Pharisees and lawyers. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Right? Difficult question. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? He was holding up the coin for them to look at. And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. And I want to suggest that this uh, saying here of Jesus saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God. Help us in this dilemma of who's the wanderer. Because it instructs us on two things. Number one, there are some things that are God's. They should be given to God. There are other things that are down here that are responsibility, like taxes, right? We all have to do our taxes. Thank you, Steve. We have to do those. And Paul says when it comes to this kind of discussion, we all see through a glass darkly. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, it's very clear to God, it's not that clear to us. And so, what's our best call? When it comes to salvation, we, can, we cannot know for sure who's saved. Now, we can make some educated guesses. We can listen to their story. We can watch. We can guess by fruit. We can do some stuff, but... Truthfully, we never totally truly know. It's only God who truly knows. And the realm of who's saved or who's not saved really falls into God's jurisdiction. So when it comes to these verses then of the wanderer, um, what should should be our take? One of the reasons I called uh, this series Shoe Leather Wisdom is just because I love James. It's just a practical, down-to-earth, nuts-and-bolts kind of book. And... um, the shoe leather wisdom title actually comes from the Midwest. And I, I know you'd be shocked and surprised from that. But uh, it had to do with the farmers I grew up with. And, and they just had this kind of practical wisdom that cut through so much baloney of highfalutin sounding things. They, you get somebody pontificating, they just go, and man, they did, right, Linda? They just shish kebab you with it. They, they just knew how to cut through and simplify stuff. And they had approach to things like this. And what they would say is, son, you're overthinking it. Just get the hay in the barn. You can figure out all the fine details later. Right? You can muse about all this and the baler that and the tractor this and the way that. But you know what? That's really not important right now. What's important right now is get the hay in the barn. Right? And, and there's an old saw in theology that resonates with this kind of thinking. It says when the passage makes plain sense... You don't need to turn it into nonsense. Just apply it with good sense. You ever heard that one before? It's a great saying. It says, when the passage makes plain sense, you don't need to turn it into nonsense. Just apply it with good sense. In other words, just do what it says. Right? And I want us to go back to this passage this morning as we come to communion and just look at it because I think it gives us some great things. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, And someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James is more worried about the fact that people are facing death than where they are in the thing. He says, if you find somebody wandering, try to turn them. Let God figure out whether they're a believer or sinner or not. It doesn't really matter. If you see somebody wandering from the truth, try to turn them. And one of the greatest promises, one of the greatest blessings in all of Scripture is found right here. It says, for those of us who do that, it says, we see somebody wandering, we know somebody's wandering from the truth, and we make an attempt to turn them. It says, not only will you save them from death, but you will cover over a multitude of sins. And the meaning there is, is dual, twofold. One, 
a number of their sins, but also the implication is you cover over a number of your sins. Okay? You want to feel freedom? You want to do blessings? You can know in your head, theologically, you can know you're forgiven. Right? But sometimes emotionally that doesn't really connect very well. And James says, well, here, let's make it connect in shoe leather. You've been extended mercy by Jesus, right? Yeah, I have. Well, then turn and extend mercy to someone else. You were once wandering, right? Go and help somebody else who's wandering. And when you extend mercy to them, you will suddenly realize that, oh, mercy's extended to me as well. Remember the parable Jesus told about the two stewards? One owed him a million bucks, one owed him a hundred bucks, which cutting it simple in our right for today. And the the guy who owed a million begged and pled because he's about to get thrown in jail and he said, please have mercy, I'll, I'll pay you back everything. And the, and the owner said, you know what? I forgive you the whole deal. You're, the slate's clean. Whoa. But then he found a guy who owed him a hundred bucks. Throttled the snot out of the guy. The guy begged him the same way he had begged. And he said, no way. And he threw him in jail. And Jesus was trying to make a point that it's important that when mercy has been extended to us, we extend mercy to others. That's the whole basis of a church. That's the whole basis of fellowship, that we're body believers together. What do we do after 15 minutes when we get excused? Where will we go? Out in the community, right? What's our job? To extend the same mercy to others that's been extended to us. And so in the passage, James, here, if you see someone who is wandering from the truth, and you really want to experience how mercy works, turn them. Try to turn them from the air. Extend mercy to them. And you will suddenly realize how deep the the depth and the riches of the mercy that Jesus has extended to you. And it's with that idea I want to come into communion because who should we extend mercy to? I would suggest this morning it doesn't matter if they're a believer or non-believer. If you see anybody wandering from the truth, Try to turn them. Try to turn them as God gives you opportunity. You know, um, as we come to communion this morning, right? I can, I can clearly name all those someones who turned me from the error of my ways. I can see their faces. I can, I can remember the conversations. I stand before you this morning because of those someones. Jeffrey Cole, an unnamed guy in North Carolina who I don't remember his name, who I'll meet in heaven. Big Mike and Little Mike. You just heard these stories two Sundays ago. Coach Bob Lord of the Green Bay Packers. Stanley Kantz, my hero. Those someones found me wandering and they helped me turn from the error of my way. And as we come to communion this morning, two questions worth pondering as we close out this this series in James. And I want to ask you, with communion in mind, who was your someone? Who do you instantly become grateful for right now, this second, when I say, who was your someone who saw you wandering and helped you turn from the error of your ways? They come to mind right now? Like my list does? Can you think of Maybe it was your mom and dad, Right? Maybe you grew up in a godly Christian home with a mom and dad who loved you and they spoke to you Jesus early. They spoke to you Jesus often. They annoyed you with Jesus, but they turned you to him and you went, wow, what great parents. My gosh, 
How awesome. And then the second question, whose life are you supposed to speak into? As we take communion, we think about the grace extended to us. Who are you supposed to extend grace to? Who can you help turn from the errors of their way? Who do you need to pray for? Does the name show up? You're thinking of a friend? You're thinking of a family member? You're thinking of a cousin? You're thinking of a neighbor? Thinking of a, a work associate? Who, who's that person? Who do you need to extend grace to? Because, see, James says, you learn it if you do it. You don't learn it if you just talk about it. You don't learn it if you just think about it. You learn it if you do it. And if we do it, we will know something about the grace of God that we otherwise would never know. So who's your person? Who's your person this week that you need to try and turn? And you need to pray about it because you know it's going to be difficult. And you don't know how to do it. Who's that person? You only come to communion... Jesus said, this is my grace to you. I'll cover your debt. I'll cover, I'm going to extend mercy to you. You can't pay the bill. I'll let my body be broken so the bill's paid. Paid in full. Uh, No cost anymore. He said, I'm going to extend mercy to you. He said, eat this in memory of me. And then he took a cup. He said, this is the covenant of my blood that I make with you. He said, this is going to be shed for the remission of your sins. Jesus didn't turn away from the cross. He turned towards the cross. And the same way Jesus is saying, we should turn towards people who... Jesus came to find wanderers. He said, I didn't come to find the healthy people. Healthy people don't need a physician. Healthy people don't need a Savior. But sinners do. Wanderers do. He says, I've come to find the wanderers. He says, drink this in memory of me. Father, this is a great message. It's a great practical shoe leather message for us. It's not our job to decide who's saved or not saved. We find somebody, just go after all of them. It's your job to decide who's saved or not saved. But if we find somebody wandering, somebody walking away from the truth, then Lord, you put that person in our life and we, we, it's our job to try and turn them. By grace, by humor, by thought, by intellect, by whatever means you've equipped us and given us, we're supposed to do. And fathers, we come into the fall. We're gonna, we come now back into relationships. Come back in our neighborhoods. The garage doors are open. People are back. School starts. Rhythm happens. We run into the same people at the store and at, the, at work and uh, in public and, and just all over the place. Point out to us who the wanderers are that you're trying to find. And give us insight and wisdom how to help turn them, Lord. And may that cover a multitude of sins, both theirs and ours. And we ask for this grace in your name. Amen.